Welcome to this week's episode of Coming Up Next, the podcast. This week's ramble is with uh, documentary editor Bob Eisenhart. But before we get to the chat, are you subscribed to Coming Up Next, friends? It's very easy to do. All you have to do is go to comingupnext.com.au, select iTunes, Stitcher, Stitcher, that's the word I was looking for, or Podbean. Or you can go to Spotify and you can find it there. Once you're in one of those programs, you just have to hit subscribe and then the show is going to come to you each and every week. And if you're feeling particularly generous, maybe you want to leave a, uh, a rating or a review. It really does help the show move on. And speaking of getting the show moving on, let's get on with the show. Welcome, welcome. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Coming Up Next, the podcast. I'm Alistair Marks, and as you probably know by now, this is my podcast. This is Coming Up Next, the show where I uh, am very lucky to speak with some of the world's top creatives, top creative practitioners about, uh, about their careers, about their lives, and about what makes them silly. Um, you may be able to tell by the tone of my voice that... Uh, I'm a little bit congested, got a little bit of the um, sinus action happening, and uh, for that reason this show is going up a little bit later than usual, um, but the show does go on, and uh, a big thank you to my guest from last week, Robert Morgan, the stop motion animator. Uh, if you haven't heard it, comingupnext.com.au is going to be the place to find it, and you can find Robert's work under Robert Morgan on uh, on YouTube. There's some pretty pretty incredible stuff. Now, a couple of uh, weeks ago, maybe more than a couple, but if you go back a few episodes into the archives, you'll find uh, an interview I did with documentary filmmaker Matt Turnauer. Um, we spoke about his film Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood. Well, this week, uh, I've got the editor on board the show, uh, Bob Eisenhart. Uh, Bob's been cutting Verite features for 40 years. Um, his most recent feature, which has actually been nominated for a, a Critics' Choice Award for his editing of, is, uh, is Free Solo, which is, uh, is part of this incredible documentary boom that's happening at the moment. Um, I think it's uh, it's been out in the cinema for only... Uh, Less than less than a month, I think, and it's already pulled in over five million dollars at uh, at the U.S. box office. Like I said, it's part of this I- incredible uh, doc boom. Uh, you know that that's included films like Three Identical Strangers, Won't You Be My Neighbor, and it was a great opportunity uh, for me to speak with someone who's seen the progression of uh, of documentary films from starting out in uh, in TV editing non-fiction through to doing free solo and scotty and the secret history of hollywood so we talk about all that talk about the usual stuff talk about it right now please enjoy my interview with bob eisenhart Been, uh, I've been reading a book called uh, In the Blink of an Eye recently. Oh, yeah. um, you know, I do editing uh, when it comes to sort of short form stuff, I suppose. But I'm quite sort of taken by this book and the way that it talks about, you know, the role of the editor and how that works. Obviously, it's not necessarily new information to me but the way that it's articulated is quite um it's quite uh, interesting um so i wondered if you well what your kind of take on that is what from your point of view as someone who's been you know editing documentary films for so many years now what for you do you see the role of the editor being in that process um well um he he is basically a uh, fiction editor for the most part. Although he did work on a film called uh, what was it, Particle Field, or uh, about the uh, the collider, uh, building the collider, and um, so he he does principally fiction, which is quite different than the process 
of nonfiction. And that's kind of what I've been doing for almost all my years in the business. Um, nonfiction, uh, I mean, fiction, you start with a script. So you kind of know where you're going and who the film was about and what happens to that person. And uh, in nonfiction, you, you, you often don't know. Um, we recently did a film uh, called Free Solo, which will open in the fall, uh, about a, a rock climber who was the first person to try to climb uh, the uh, El Capitan in Yosemite National Park oh, wow. uh, without a rope. Uh, which no one had ever done before. I'm not surprised. Uh, no, yeah, no one had even contemplated it. It's like you know, it, it, as one of the persons people say in the film, it, 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 the more you know about it, the crazier it seems. Um, so, uh, so you, we started this thing, and I started editing. Um, I mean, they were shooting for a year. And then we began to edit. They have, we ended up with like 700 hours of footage. Um, but I, when I started to edit the film, he hadn't done the climb. So there's a question of, well, actually, will he do it? Or will he just say, no, this is impossible. I'm not going to bother trying. Um, or will he try and kill himself? Or will he succeed? So that's like several different movies yeah. that this could be. Um, and, and so you have to kind of go into it with, with that in mind, there is no predetermined outcome. Um, and it's a bit of an exploration. Uh, so it's, it's kind of writing an ongoing story. Um, and documentary editing is, is much more like writing, perhaps, than, uh, than fiction film editing. You combine the uh, editing and the writing in the same process. Um, and as well as it being an ongoing story. So uh, we try to do all the things that those guys do, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, make, make the thing have an exciting pace, uh, develop character. And, you know, he gets into talking about, you know, uh, you know, the proper sight lines and how, how when, the, when the precise frame is to cut on all, which is very wonderful. And you have, quite a bit of flexibility if you have 20 takes of this close-up uh in a fiction film if you have one take um no <laughs> yeah. in a non-fiction yeah. film you're you're a little more limited so it's not a it's not a series of set pieces and retakes. yeah it's it's hard to get exactly the, the the best frame is a little different calculation uh so we we try to do all of those things um, and sometimes we're, we're limited in, in, in doing some of that. But at the, at, the, uh, at the other end of the spectrum, we get to, to in a sense, write the story, which is something that uh, uh, the uh, fiction editor doesn't get to do. They get to kind of rewrite the story, they say, uh, which is they do the last, they, they tend to say they do the last draft of the script. Um, which I think is an accurate, accurate portrayal. We kind of do the first and the last draft. Yeah, and so when someone comes to you with seven hundred hours of, uh, of of vision, uh, you obviously sit down with an assistant and start the process of, you know, uh, selecting which shots you you want to use. And I mean, how kind of uh, do you remember uh, when, like, the first time that you had to? I guess step into that kind of um, job or or role where you were like was was it quite overwhelming to just be given this much footage and to then be asked to make something from it? Um, well, it's it's a bit of a process. It's always it's always overwhelming. Maybe I should say that you know <laughs> they in the you know when they used to give you ten hours and say like ten minutes out of it, it was overwhelming then too. Uh, because yeah, you have a background reason, in uh, in television acting uh, editing, uh, I started doing television. Yes, um, and I started on a. I mean, one of the first things I did was a children's TV show, which was in effect um, called Big Blue Marble, which was uh, like ten minute stories of kids around the world doing whatever they happened to be involved in, 
And uh, so they were like 10 minute little movies, uh, which was a great way to learn how to tell a story. Um, and then, you know, you get more experience and people give you bigger stories to tell. Um, but it's still the same storytelling uh, techniques. Uh, so I, I think um, <clears throat> obviously it's a lot harder to make a story carry for 90 minutes than it is for 10. Um, and and th th when you get 700 hours, we once had uh, 1,200 hours. Wow. It's a little, uh, yeah, I mean, just the, the, the amount of material to go through, you just do the math, you realize you're just going to be watching for five months, you know. Uh, <laughs> so it's a, it's a little hard to sort through, but um, there's kind of a process to go through that. You know, basically, you call through and take the wheat from the shaft the first time, so you end up with something called selects, which is kind of the best of your material, and that may only be a third of the material. So then you can begin to get your arms around it and kind of see at that point, you can begin to see how the story might be told, what the story is, is the first question. And then, uh, and then how you might be able to tell it. Right. I saw uh, actually in, uh, in doing a little bit of digging that you actually started off as an architect before you were working in the world. Was it, was it before you were working in film or was it? Yes. I, I had taken film courses in school and then shortly after school, but but my degree is in architecture, yeah. Yeah, right. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. I was always attracted to film, and then um, I was uh, for the I was working in a little uh, small firm after school with one of the professors uh, that taught, and um, we it was a small office, so there used to be breaks between you know before we got approvals of things and between jobs. So one time, instead of finding something else for a couple of weeks. I put my film under my arm and went around looking for a film job. <laughs> and three, day late, three days later, I was in the film business and never went back. That yeah, was wow. <laughs> Do you see any kind of like crossover, I guess, between the job that you would do as an architect and the job that you would do as a, as a documentary editor? Uh, I, I, for me, it's very similar. Um, it, it's basically... Uh, finding the problem and then finding a solution um, to that problem. And that, that's, that's kind of what it is. So it, it's basically design. Um, and for me, I mean, it depends on where you come from. I imagine writers come from a certain place, actors come from another place, and then they apply their, their kind of basic education to that. So that, I mean, I certainly see it that way. I see very close parallels. Uh, structuring things, so you know, how, how you, 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 uh, you reveal things, um, how you move through something, how, you know, motifs, light motifs of things. It seems very similar to me. Yeah. And so did you, did you grow up in, uh, in New York? I grew up upstate New York, about 75 miles upstate, a place called Poughkeepsie. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, which is the home of Vassar College and IBM, which is kind of the only thing. But uh, it could have been like 2,000 miles away from New York when I was growing up. It was a very, very different place. <laughs> Quite isolated, I suppose, from the creative it was, world. It, yes, it was country. I mean, yes, f from the creative world. I think that's fair to say. IBM, it, 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 I think it was a lot of IBMers, and they kind of had the, that kind of IBM mentality, which was kind of uh, engineering. Yeah, rather than the arts. Right. And were your parents involved in any... Were they involved in tech? Were they involved in anything sort of creative? Or was it more, uh, I guess, standard line of work? Uh, well, my father worked for IBM. Uh, but my grandparents were both grandfathers. Both grandfathers were in the construction business. Right. Uh, so I think that's where the, the architecture probably grew out of. Um, so that was my entree into to that world. <laughs> Did you have any experiences as a kid where you were making films or, uh, you know, doing any sort of creative stuff that you can remember, things that you remember that, I guess, inspired or kind of compelled you to pursue a creative career? I don't know. You know, uh, I mean, as a kid, you know, we were country kids and we'd be out building dams and stuff in the, in the streams and, and that kind of thing. Uh, but, uh, 
Yeah, the rector sets. So, I mean, I was kind of geared a little bit towards towards building architecture, but um, yeah, I mean, I saw like no more films than maybe the average kid. Uh, I mean, I must say they impacted me um, uh, very strongly. Um, I still uh, don't take a shower without a, a clear shower curtain because I saw Psycho. Uh, so, yeah, so there... And, you know, I remember Rebel Without a Cause. I mean, certain films really kind of, I think, made it, made a serious impact. But I can't say I made them. Those are the days. I mean, now uh, what's extraordinary is kids grow, grow up making YouTube movies and stuff. And that's, that's a huge difference um, than the days when, you know, you might have a still camera or, you know, I mean, we had a tape recorder that seemed like high tech. Um, so, uh so, yeah, I mean, there was, you know, eight millimeter film was the kind of uh, hottest thing going. Yeah, right. Um, and, and now kids do that all the time. And I think the, um, their, their use, their understanding of the grammar is so much farther uh, along than ours were. Ours was, I mean, we, we really had to... Uh, had to understand, we had to learn that language where I think these people, it's almost um, uh, automatic. Well, you, it, it seems to me as though, you know, kids uh, from a very young age, kinda, I guess, in, technology is integrated into their lives. Uh, so their understanding is a lot more sophisticated at an earlier stage. So, you know, where... I guess your generation or my generation had to kind of make a very conscious decision to learn the craft. Perhaps uh, the the younger generation now is just being given it by virtue of the fact that there's a camera in an iPad or a camera in a phone. Uh, exactly. And, and it was a craft when I entered, which, I mean, we were cutting 16 millimeter film and, um, and 35 millimeter film. And, you know, magnetic tracks where you would literally take a razor, you know, I mean, one of the techniques was to cleaning up the, the, uh, the audio tracks was take a razor blade and scrape some of the magnesium off it. Oh, wow. You know? <laughs> uh, I mean, that's, that, that's the way it was kind of done. I mean, I came in after the guys who hot spliced, uh, glued, literally glued things, permanently glued, uh, film together, uh, in, uh, I came in the revolution of, of flatbed editing machines, so so you could actually see what you were doing on a decent size screen, and and uh, you know you tape splice stuff together so you could change the splice, you know, but uh, you couldn't push a button and uh, save everything you've done and uh, and uh, make twenty seven copies of it. Uh, <laughs> that was that and was control Z done. any mistakes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what a great, uh, what a great command that is. Yeah, I mean, do you feel as though that moment that you were just talking about, you know, I guess in a kind of nutshell, moving from glue to tape, uh, and and having something that could actually project what you were editing, was that a kind, was that sort of transition, uh, in the same sort of vein as when uh, nonlinear editing, like you know, the Final Cut and Premiere and when it became uh, so digitized, was it the same sort of effect or was that nonlinear step just a completely different game changer? I think it was probably a bigger step, but um, you can just think of the a number of choices you had. When these guys um, cut something in those days, you would lose, you would use a hot splicer, so you, you would lose it, you would cut the film and you would lose a frame and then you would glue it together. So, you could not really change your mind. Uh, you could cut that scene out. You could cut the, tighten it up, perhaps, but you couldn't kind of revise. So you had to kind of know where you were going with what you were doing. Um, with with, uh, with tape splices, you you could make a couple revisions uh, before the thing got so chopped up that it would no longer go through the machine. Uh, now you make endless revisions. You know, I, I remember when they show, first showed us the Avid, uh, there were a couple other versions of nonlinear editing before the Avid. Um, but they said, 
And you can save your cut. You make a copy and then you can do something else. I said, well, why would you want to make a copy? I mean, you just, you know, like you do it right the first time. <laughs> so, so there was a way, I mean, the good part about that is that you had to figure out what you were doing before you did it. You had to, you had to think this through. And uh, it, it was a, um, it was a skill that perhaps is lost a little bit. I tell my students that, you know, you have to like the most, the best editing is done in your shower in the morning. You know, you figure out what, how to solve this problem and then you go in and execute. You don't get in the middle of, uh, you know, uh, all your material and then start moving things around haphazardly. Um, so I, I think there's, there's a kind of discipline that may have been uh, lost a little bit. Right. But I certainly wouldn't. I, I don't want to go back. <laughs> I, yeah. So what was the first, I guess, uh, you start as an assistant in this world after you've decided not to go back to being an architect? What was your progression from being an assistant editor through to starting to cut stuff yourself for television and then, I suppose, moving uh into the world of feature documentaries? Uh, I got hired uh, as uh, less than an editing room assistant, I guess, uh, and because one of the editors was complaining he didn't have any help. So I was hired, and you know, uh, three weeks later, the shop steward comes in. It was all union in those days, and says, you have to join the union. So I said, fine, okay. So I immediately got a raise and became an editing room assistant. And... Uh, but I had been making films along the way, so I showed them, you know, I was showing these people the films I had made. So there was an opportunity to, to edit on this um, children's television series, and they gave me the opportunity. So, I mean, six months later, I'm editing. Uh, so that, that's a rare, a rare occurrence, uh, I think. For a long time, uh, that wasn't possible. Now, I think people do really have opportunities. There's so many outlets for... for uh, or product um, that um, a lot of young people do get a chance quite quickly to start working. Um, but that was kind of rare even in those days. And um, uh, this was, uh, this show went on for a number of years and most people work as an assistant for quite a number of years and get around town and meet a lot of people. Um, I didn't have that opportunity. So, there was a while, uh, uh, a period where, you know, I, uh, after the job ended, I was kind of running around town trying to find some work for myself. I didn't know that many people in the biz. Um, but I did get a, a, a break and started another television series that were one-hour specials uh, for CBS that, that happened to become very successful, uh, the Body Human series, which was uh, uh, kind of, and medical entertainment in a way. And so that, that led to much bigger projects after that. So, um, and I think, you, you know, you slowly figure out how to make the bigger pictures, you know, the longer form things. Uh, still stepping into a 90 minute theatrical is a bit of a leap. I think these, I, I, I th again, these days, I think people, People are more attuned to what it takes um, in those days, uh, maybe a little less. Because in those days, documentaries, I mean, there was TV documentaries. Um, and then there was the occasional, no one went to documentaries in theaters. You know, there was Pumping Iron was a huge, um, <laughs> a huge thing. Um, and my friends, uh, who I eventually... That's the one with, uh, with Arnold Schwarzenegger, yeah? Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, and... Uh, my friends had a big breakthrough editing that picture. Um, and uh, so there were really only a handful of films that became theatrical films. Uh, it's hard to imagine now. I think last year there were like 170 feature length docs that qualified for Academy Award consideration. It's pretty amazing so, but, how that, how it's kind of exploded in the last, I guess the last 12 or 18 months uh, and how much, people are turning to documentary form and, and content uh, as, a, as a preference. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how, um, 
how that happened. I thought that when reality TV, um, I, I came up in, in um, uh, uh, for a long time, I, I worked with the Maisels and other people who were doing cinema verite. Uh, after the TV stuff, I kind of uh, got into that. And, um, you know, that was like observed life. Uh, you know, um, very different than just the opposite, perhaps, of reality television. So I always felt that once I saw reality television, that that was the end of documentaries. You know, they had kind of soiled uh, the the genre uh, somehow. Uh, But in fact, just the opposite happened, that people saw there was actually dramatic possibilities uh, that could be made out of real life. And and I think that that um, really prompted a much uh, uh, promoted a much bigger audience yeah and late and lately there have been just films that are just, I mean this the stories are are fascinating and they're and they're well told and it's uh, yeah I mean mr. Rod you know uh, would you be my neighbor and three identical strangers these kinds of things are just great stories that really seem to connect with people yeah uh, looking at the the numbers as well at the box office of what they're doing. I mean, that you know, they're not doing uh, Avengers numbers, but for what they are and, and the space that they occupy, it's pretty phenomenal to see that people are actually going out to the cinema to watch the films. Oh uh, yes, and and in, in a day when you could get them on your your iPhone. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's really saying something. Um, yeah, twenty million dollars for uh, Mr. Rogers. Uh, which you've been my neighbor. I mean, it's, it's astonishing. Um, and, and I think, you know, this, the last, the last boom I think was when Fahrenheit nine 11 came out and it made you know, what, $110 million. So suddenly everyone thought, Oh, this is, I can make a lot of money, you know, making documentaries. Well, it took <laughs> a number of years and uh, a lot of investors' money to realize that you don't really make tons of money. No. Um, but you, uh, but there is a renewed interest, and people are willing to go to the theaters, and that's pretty exciting. Yeah, and I think for filmmakers who aren't necessarily established filmmakers, you know, it's a great way to be able to tell interesting and compelling stories uh, in a relatively speaking inexpensive way. Yes, I mean even the most expensive docs are a fraction of the cost, and and the, the fact is that you can make them, you know, literally with your iPhone, yeah. uh, and and for almost no money. So it's just a question of, you know, finding the story and having the talent to tell it. So, I mean, that's not like it was forty years ago when it it, it really cost a lot of money to do the smallest possible project. What was uh, what was behind your choice? Was it a deliberate choice to move into cutting specifically verite or observational style documentaries, or was it just something that you kind of fell into? A little bit of both, I think. It seemed in those days that the road kind of diverged. If you became more experienced doing uh, documentaries, you kind of drifted into that field rather than uh, than. Uh, in the fiction world where in the editing rooms, things are set up slightly differently. Um, so you kind of became more expert at one that rather than the other assistants could move back and forth a little bit. Editors tended not to, um, and directors certainly didn't. Now that's changed. I mean, people do go back and forth these days. Um, but then there was something that I just, I mean, I just found it more interesting, um, for perhaps the same reason when I go to a film festival and I start um, uh, going into films that I know very little about, um, if you go into a fiction film, you might find something extraordinary. Or you might feel like you have wasted an hour and a half of your life. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's really... And then you walk into a nonfiction film and, you know, if the, it could be spectacular and if the storytelling is not the best uh you probably just learned a lot about an interesting subject so you come away a little more fulfilled and i think that's kind of how i felt about working in the in the field also 
Was there uh, an evolution to the way that you started to work in this manner? Was it quite overwhelming or because obviously, like we said before, you're being given one, so much more footage and two, probably more responsibility with that footage uh, as an editor and as you say, the kind of writer or craftsman uh, in a way of the the final story. Um, So was there... You know, sort of between, you know, looking at something like American Standoff through to, you know, um, what you're what you've what you're just completing now um, with Free Solo. Has there or obviously there has been an evolution, but what are some of the pertinent ways that you've uh, moved forward? Well, I think uh, through the smaller projects, you develop a technique uh, of handling the material. Uh, organizing the material and thinking about how to use the material to tell the story. Um, But you also build up a little bit of confidence that it will somehow in the end work out Uh, because every picture, there's a point where you think this is definitely not going to work. I mean, we're we're in big trouble here. I don't know what to do. uh, And we can't possibly get out of that. Now, you've gotten out of it a few times before, so you begin to have faith that, um, you know, uh, if you bang your head against the wall long enough, you will come up with a solution for it. (laughs) And a very Uh, sore head. Yeah. And, you know, and so you're taking on a picture that people have obviously invested more money in because it's a bigger thing. Uh, You're investing a tremendous amount of time. Free Solo, let's see, I was on that picture for... uh, 14 months uh, and then another four months part-time and we may well have finished the next nine o'clock day before last oh, wow. so congratulations think, you know <laughs> we, you know we've uh, said that before so right we may go back and you know get a better idea and tweak it again um, so I, I mean I, I I think there's uh a basic technique that you've learned and a little bit of confidence that you've developed over the years that somehow there's a, there's a way out of this um, <laughs> dilemma. When someone brings you a project like uh, Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood, um, which I was fortunate enough to see while I was in uh, Los Angeles recently, what is, is there kind of a, um, because that's so steeped in, I guess, uh, historical analysis and uh, I guess things that have already happened, you know, way, way in the past, but we're also telling the story of a present day person. Is there any sort of difference in the approach that you take to putting a piece of cinema together like that? Yeah, that that's was uh, really tricky. Um, there, there's a balance that you have to achieve. Um, I, I mean, just a little background. Uh, Scotty uh, was a, as they call, it, pimp to the stars uh, in the '40s, '50s, and '60s, and uh, he's now, when the film started, ninety. He just had his ninety-fifth birthday uh, last month. Um, still going strong but uh you know a 90 year old man is not going to be doing a whole lot in the present day uh and so when we follow scotty around he's kind of rambling around his house we realize he's a hoarder uh and we visit some of the people he knew who who are still alive uh but most of them are not and he wrote this book rather described often as a tell-all book about people who uh, he uh, has outed was the other criticism that the, he, he's basically telling us about all these stars who had uh, gay, uh, secret gay lives. Um, this is like and, these are like some of the biggest names from the golden era of uh, Cary Grant, Spencer, Cary Grant, Spencer Tracy, Catherine Ever. You, you name them, Scotty was there, um, but. Uh, you know, I suppose you could do uh, an expose, uh, you know, somehow put this guy and these things on trial. But that wasn't our um, our point of view. Um, 
most of these people are dead. I mean, we found all kinds of collaborations, uh, corroborations, sorry, uh, uh, to his stories. Um, but it couldn't be an investigative report. Um, really, I think we felt that if you met Scotty, um, you could form your own opinion about whether you could believe this or not. And you and we were interested in the man as much a man who was able to do this, who went through these experiences, as the the gossipy, more gossipy uh, elements in it. Um, so one fed the other, and uh, if you could achieve the proper balance, and if you could get that forward momentum of a story to flow through both the now and the then of that story. Um, so it, it was a kind of a tricky thing to pull off. Um, do you set like a, I guess, a kind of objective from the outset, uh, with, you know, in conjunction with the director or the producer or both. And that's kind of like the, the big picture that you're working towards. Yeah, I think the most important thing is that uh, uh, Matt Turnhour, the director on this one, uh, I had worked with before on Valentino, The Last Emperor. And the, the most important thing is to, is to be making the same movie. So, I mean, we talked a long time about Valentino before I started working on it. We talked a long time about Scotty, about what we were trying to achieve in the point of view. And once we kind of have a mind meld on that, uh, it's not so hard uh, to kind of go through the material um, and and cut things in a way that will be uh, under that that you both agree on uh, how to tell the story. And we and, and Matt was very keen on the uh, verite element. Uh, you know, he says he's greatly inspired by Grey Gardens as a film, uh, which is a, a Maisel film. Um, and, you know, there's a quite a big touch of that in Scotty and the Scotty film. Uh, but to, to uh, allow a, a verite portrait of this person to develop, to balance the, you know, the uh, uh, archival material that we have and the experts, um, he felt that very strongly, as I did, that that, that combination was essential. Then it's a question of how to get it to work. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> how how did you get it to work? It took a long time to find the right balance between how much, uh, what elements of the present day story could get you into um, an explanation of uh, the pa from the past. Um, it what what element in the uh, in the moments of, of uh, the things that came up in the present day of Scotty rambling through his house would lead you to uh, a, a passage from 1950 that would explain both the world then and a little bit about Scotty now. Uh, so it was, it was finding that weave, uh, finding that balance. Uh, you know, in the book... Uh, it all kind of came about because of this book that Scotty, this memoir that Scotty wrote, um, which he names, names, I mean, there's literally thousands. <laughs> and we weren't interested in naming all those things. We were interested in finding elements uh, about people he talked about that described the period and the Hollywood of that day and what was happening um, and, and, and what caused these people lives to, uh, to be led in this way that, that they had to hide their true selves uh, so that they could keep their job at the Hollywood studios and not be uh, arrested by the vice squad. Yeah, because that's really what's at the heart of the piece is how, I guess, how times have changed, but also how uh, difficult it was for, you know, people to really be who they actually were and and had to hide or feel ashamed about certain aspects of their lives because it didn't fit into a Hollywood narrative. Right. And, and Hollywood was actually creating, going to tremendous lengths to create a whole other uh, scenario for these people. 
Uh, the best example is the Catherine Hepburn, Spencer Tracy stories that that uh, were generated by the studios. That it was better to have an adulter a story of an adulterous lifestyle than a gay lifestyle. Yeah, it's pretty crazy to consider how uh, just how taboo it was to be gay or to lead a, a homosexual lifestyle. Um, particularly in such a creative and liberal art form, I suppose. But I guess that was the perception that was wanted to be had. Yeah, I mean, we explained in the film how, um, you know, Hollywood was a very different place before the uh, production code came into place in the 30s, that it really was kind of a wild place and that people were allowed to kind of do, uh, you know, whatever uh, was true to themselves, you know, was still legal um and a very different uh a very different picture was painted by the studios after the production card where they felt that that they had to make hollywood uh and the people in hollywood and the stories told by hollywood look much more like middle american uh, uh and and their values um whether that was true or not i'm not so sure that that's what middle I, I mean, I think the same world was hidden in middle America also, but uh, it, it, it really was this, this, uh, this story in mythical proportions. Yeah. So how much uh, footage did you have for that one? And I guess it would have been a slightly different process because so much of it would have been archival. Do you sit down and write like a beat sheet or do you have like storyboards in a way that you kind of start piecing together? Yes. Well, it, the technique I've kind of developed, and it's really, really important for uh, for verite films, um, is uh, I I make um, in effect a index card for every scene of the film that was shot. Um, so, uh, and I tend to color code them according to some way that kind of makes sense. If there's you know past and present, that there might be two different kinds of colors. Um, and, uh, the reason I do this is that you can then take those scenes and basically shuffle them into an order that begins to work. So you storyboard, I storyboard the entire film before I start cutting. So, um, I, I paste these things onto the wall and, and come up with a, a flow of a story that I think has the best shot of working, best chance of working. And then I cut. Uh, I mean, each you could probably cut each of the scenes that you shot for Scotty every time you're in his ha house three different ways to have three different meanings. But I try to find a place where I can cut it for the best possible meaning um, and use it that way. The best possible meaning for the scene itself and for its place in the story, what it tells for the bigger story, the bigger arc. And then when I paste all these cards on the wall, I can get a, a feeling of how the movie flows. And, I mean, we've done films like uh, The Dixie Chicks, uh, Shut Up and Sing, where it was half was uh, in the past, uh, in a sense of flashback to a tour, and the present time was them writing songs about the tour that they had this terrible incident about criticizing George Bush during the war, had which destroyed their career. So they were writing about something present and the past was the tour that it actually happened on. And these were intercut. Um, so there was a series of flashbacks. So um, present day turned out to be, you know, I put all those color cards and, and, you know, greens and blues and warm colors and the past was all hot colors. And so when you look at the wall, you could see, oh, well, I'm in the past so long and I can't. And then we have to get back to the present. And we're in the present for too long because that's a big, long column of green there. Uh, so obviously that structure is not going to work. So you could just looking at the thing, you can begin to sense what works. So this is a rather long explanation of a rather cumbersome process. But <laughs> that's basically how things are, how I managed to, to figure out the, the structure of the film. Yeah, I mean, it's there's, there's so much, I guess, to kind of rein into an idea or a through line or a narrative how do you 
find that you move through if you get blocked or if you've come up against a challenge and you don't know how to solve a particular moment or scene how have you kind of found over the years the best way to move through it aside from thinking about it in the shower if you're having trouble with a particular scene it may well be in the wrong place so i mean you begin to think about whether this is the thing you should be going to at this point in the movie uh whether uh if it's not working uh it may be you may be trying to squeeze it into the wrong place um so uh, repositioning it would be probably one thing I would think about doing. Um, and then uh, sometimes just moving on is the best uh, solution, uh, moving to the next thing. Uh, and you'll, you may well find by looking at it in that place, once you get away from it a little bit, that you realize that it should be it's telling the wrong part of the story and it's in the wrong place and it should be cut slightly differently to tell a different part of the story. Right. These are, the, the, these are puzzle, you know, it's a jigsaw puzzle, but it's the puzzle pieces can, you can reshape the individual pieces of the puzzle, but that means you have to reshape all the other pieces of the puzzle also. <laughs> uh, so it, de it depends on where it is in the film, depends on what that scene is doing. Yeah. Has to do. Yeah, I, I mean, I love the editing process. It's uh, it's so remarkable to see. You know, I've done rough assemblies of bigger projects that I've done before, and then given them given the project to a professional editor, and just some of the the choices that get made, and some of the things that end up in the final cut. You know, it's it's such an art form, um, and I'm constantly in awe of you know the people who do it well and. The way that the various elements, be it the sound mix or design or, you know, the music or the way that just all of these different elements just tie everything together is, uh, I, I still feel like it's just such a kind of magical process to be a part of. Uh, yeah, what's interesting is that some of these things don't come together until a much later stage. Um, you, you, there's there's elements that you encounter once you get the final score that change things for better or worse. You go into the mix and you uh, hope you have made choices that will enable good things to happen in the mix. Uh, and so and sometimes you're you're extremely surprised. Um, I did a film called Meru, uh, which was a mountain climbing film also. Um, and we were able to, uh, to put in a lot of the, the, they were climbing in the Himalayas, 20,000 feet up in the Himalayas. And uh, there wasn't a lot of good sound, but the good sound was very good sound because there was no cars going by. Uh, so we were able, once we got to the mix stage, to incorporate all these sounds. And it just it just came alive in a way that uh, was very surprising and very gratifying. And luckily, almost all the times, there was room enough to experience that, that extra heightened reality that the sound quality brought to it. Uh, a couple times, there wasn't enough room. I, I didn't quite leave enough room for the full experience. So... These things that you have to kind of anticipate and uh, hope that when it all comes together, it's, uh, it's, it's more than the sum of the parts. You know, as someone who has been you know, nominated for Academy Award and won multiple Emmys and, and had even more nominations, when you set out to make a, a feature now, nowadays, I guess when you started, what was your idea? How would you have defined a successful project, and how would you define that now, as a as as someone who's been doing it for uh, forty years? You know, it was just very exciting to see your work on television the first time. Uh, and I remember at the time I had like this little, uh, you know, twenty-inch TV that I that I saw it on. It was, it was, uh, it must it have was been very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, uh, I mean, I think your standards are higher. I think that 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 everybody's standards are higher um, for, for in, in the documentary world, which is a good thing. Um, so, uh, I, I feel like uh, yeah, I just went to see the New York premiere of Scotty last night, um, and uh, 
you know, I'm recutting the movie as it's going on. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you you, uh, you you want to make sure that you uh, you you nail it, that you get every uh, every beat right, and you know, every transition right, and tone of every scene right. Um, so I think I think the pressure feels the same. It's just that the the standards are higher. Yeah, no, I could imagine that. You know, with uh, with everything that you've done, it's like, well, what's next? What am I moving on to? And how do I? And when I say what's next, I don't mean that you're not present to the work that you're doing. More like, how can I take the next step up in terms of the quality of the the film that I'm that I'm producing? Yeah, and uh, it's always um, and it's always a slightly different subjects of slightly different films so it's always like uh, a slightly different challenge um i mean the end game is the same but uh how you get there uh varies uh, uh tone uh subject matter um for instance scotty was a very tricky subject matter i mean part of i mean we're taking advantage of the gossipy salacious uh, stories that we tell, and at the same time, it's a very serious uh, investigation of the, the who this person is, and 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 the constraints and uh, lives that the the people were forced to live decades ago. Um, so that tone is is was a really uh, tricky thing to handle, and and we frankly thought we would be open to a lot of criticism about that and i think we managed to for the most part pull it off it's definitely been told in a in a very kind of deft uh, and sophisticated way i think i don't think it really i mean it could understand like you say if if it did cause or stir a little bit of controversy based on the subject matter but i mean at least everything that i've seen about it has been uh, overwhelmingly um in favor of the story um, thank you so much, Bob, for uh, for taking time out of your your Saturday uh, day after you've been to the the New York premiere of Scotty. Hopefully, your uh, your head wasn't too sore after last night. Um, I uh, I end all of my podcasts with the same question. A uh, question is, what makes you silly? <laughs> what makes me silly? Uh, hmm. You know, I don't know, a few drinks and little stories with friends. <laughs> What's your drink of choice? Oh, I'm a wine drinker. Wine uh, drinker? Yeah. So we get together with friends every once every uh, once a month and we tackle a different country, a different region. Right. Which, uh, which region are you in at the moment? Uh, let's see. The last time was the Pacific Northwest. How's that for a, uh, for a drop of red? Uh, it, it was a great evening. <laughs> <laughs> a night of silliness. Thank you so much, Bob. Thank you, Alistair.